Uh, he and his family went to Belfast this past summer, a little vacation. And uh, one of the days there, well, I think it was the only day they were in Belfast, he and his sons ended up in a cab. Uh, his sons are both 20 in their 20s. Um, the, his wife and daughters and others traveling ended up in a different cab. Well, Pete was telling me this last, uh, this last Friday at his son's wedding that in this cab, the cabbie happened to have a, a very, well, a, a language that was fluent with the word that starts with F. Yeah. And they were having this conversation back and forth and back and forth, and eventually uh, the cabbie asks Pete, well, what do you do for a living? And Pete kind of hesitated, but he's like, I'm a pastor. And immediately the cabbie's like, oh my, oh my, you're a priest. I'm so sorry. I should not talk like that. Forgive me. And a couple of sentences later, his language returned to what it was. And Pete tells me he was not offended in the least bit. I wouldn't have been either. Pete likes church people. I like church people. Okay, but he also likes being around people who are a little rougher around the edges authentic people, real people. And when you lead off with, hey, I'm a pastor, it it tends to, you know, help people shy away from that. So as he was telling me about this, I couldn't help but thinking of the sermon series that we're in, right? Offensive Christianity, who's in, who's out. And the, the tagline that we've been using is the gospel is not offensive because of who it keeps out, but who it lets in. I think Jesus would have enjoyed that cab ride. Let me pray. God, you are good all the time, and all the time you are good. We are thankful for that. We have so much to learn from each other, from you. We recognize that our hearts can be torn in different directions, that even on a Sunday morning when we have worshiped together already, we may still be thinking about what's coming next, what's going on this afternoon, what's going on tonight or tomorrow. I ask, Lord, that you would grab our hearts that you would help us focus for these coming minutes and moments and that we would worship in time through your word as well as worship as we gather around your table. We want to make sure that our lives are lived in worship and as we gather that we bring a smile to your face. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're in this sermon series that we've been in now for about a month, going to walking slowly walking our way through the life story of Jesus as told by the gospel writer Mark. And we are looking as we go at who Jesus lets in. By in, as a reminder, I mean who he lets into his immediate sphere, who he he engages with, who he smiles at, who he sees, like truly sees, and who Jesus loves. Now, does that mean that everybody Jesus invites into his kingdom now follows him? Does that mean that everybody he invites ends up in the pearly gates and puffy clouds? That's not for me to determine. That's for God to determine. What we are looking at as we go is who Jesus invites in, the life he lived, and what that would look like for us to live very similarly to him today. All right? I'm not going to recap who all Jesus has invited in already. We're only halfway through chapter 2, so if you haven't got there, get your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Uh, But we've seen a lot of people already. Now, whether it's the interruptions, the infectious, the repeat offenders, or those most offended by what Jesus is saying, so far we have not seen him withhold his invitation from anyone, have we? I'll ask it again. Everybody shake your head no, okay? So far we have not seen Jesus withhold his invitation from anyone, have we? 
No, not once has he said, Ooh, I'm sorry, you, you're not invited. But will that change this morning? Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. Huh. We could just stop there. And everybody would be happy. He went out to the lake shore. The verse before, he was in Capernaum. He was healing a paralytic who was uh, guilty of breaking and entering. And then now, he leaves the crowds and takes a walk about four miles to the shore of Galilee. Why? Was it because he needed a little silence and solitude? He's already shown us early stages of the mark that he likes to get away. Was it because he wanted to get away from the crowds? And if it was, it didn't work, right? Because as you can see, and the crowds gathered again, and he taught them. Was it because, and this is an interesting thought, slowly but surely he is getting kicked out of the synagogue a chapter and a half into the gospel, right? So maybe Jesus gets to the point where it's like, all right, four walls don't want me. I'll take the open air as my sanctuary and the boat or a mountainside as my pulpit. That's a good idea. It's ironic that the Son of God is slowly getting kicked out of the house of God. Anyways. Verse 13, then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax tax collector's booth. Was that booth right there on the ocean? Right there in the sea? Like, you ever pictured that? He's just walking along, peaceful, picking up starfish and throwing them in one at a time, you know, skipping rocks, and all of a sudden he he hits a tax collector booth. I mean, what was it, one of those like maybe portable tables that you could pick up and move so when the boats landed, the tax collector could go and go right where they landed, and then he could collect, collect the taxes from him? Most scholars believe that ta- the tax collector booth was not actually on the beach, but it was back in Capernaum, which is, might be why Jesus, it says in verse 14, as he walked along. So maybe he had taken his four-mile walk from Capernaum out to the beach, taught a few people, and walked back. And he comes across this tax collector booth. Where it is doesn't really matter. It's who's sitting there that does. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Who was Levi? Son of Alphaeus. Yep. And what does that mean? We'll get to that next week, maybe the week after. But what did he do for a living? Tax collector. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you like tax collectors? Don't, don't put your thumb up because maybe there's somebody in here that collects taxes. And if you do, Jesus loves you, as is evidenced by Levi. We may not like tax collectors much today. But tax collectors in Jesus' day, they were hated at a whole nother level. All right, and most of you have probably heard this, so most of this is probably review, but let's just review it anyways because it gives us an idea of who this Levi character is. First, collecting taxes. The Greek for tax collector is literally tax farmer. What do farmers do? They grow food. They make, well, God makes it, but they make food bigger. He's a tax farmer. Making it bigger. What type of taxes was he collecting? Do we know? Was it income tax? Was it sales tax? 
Was it sand tax? Was it tax on the gas? We don't know for sure. We do think, at least some people think, that he was sitting there on the border of one region to another region because Capernaum was a border town. Thirty years earlier, Herod the Great had lived. All the region was one under one rule, and everybody walked from one place to another without getting any sort of, any sort of problems. But then when Herod the Great died in A.D. 4, his kingdom was split up into four different regions, and four different rulers started ruling those four different regions, and they thought, how do we make money? Oh, I know, let's set up a toll bridge. So when someone walks from this region to the next, they'd collect taxes. That's what a lot of people think Levi was collecting. Now, other people think, at least a 1929 commentary, which I realized this morning is almost 100 years old. Wow. Okay. Other people think Levi collected taxes from the fishermen on the fish that they caught before they brought him into town to sell. If that was the case, who would he have already known? <laughs> Jesus' four amigos. Andrew, Simon, James, and John. And would Andrew, Simon, James, and John have liked Levi? Probably not. What was Jesus thinking? Calling this guy? I mean, let's just sit with this idea of tax collectors and how they're viewed by looking at something Jesus said. Even Jesus threw them under the bus. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said, If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. So at least even he was saying, ah, maybe he didn't think that, but he was saying it in a way that other people got it. Tax collectors were hated. They were put in the same category as adulterers, as flatterers, as murderers, as thieves. They were the vilest of men. And according to an academic commentary that I have, when a Jew entered the customs service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or as a witness in a court case. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his entire family. So if Eric was a tax collector, Merle and Connie, you guys are hated too. It's just the way it was. Started trying to think of who that person would be for us today, and maybe I've decided I'll think of who it would be for me. Okay, you ready for this? Um, it might be an IRS agent mixed with, you know, somebody who scams senior citizens out of their life savings, mixed with somebody who you have to call for insurance claims, mixed with a call center for Xfinity and Verizon, mixed with somebody who sells cars to people who don't care about whether or not the car works, they just want to make the sale. All mixed together. If you do any of those things, I love you. Jesus loves you. But if it was all mixed together, oh, I don't know. And that's what it was like to be Levi. Kicked out of the community. Kicked out of the faith. Yelled at by everyone. If you're here and you work a call center and I've ever yelled at you, forgive me, please. Because of Levi, his own family was hated too. Think about this. Do you think Levi wanted that job? Do you think as a little Jewish boy he grew up thinking, ooh, I want to be a tax collector. I want to pad my pockets from the, the purse of my people so that I can get a bigger donkey with the heated saddle and the house that overlooks the seashore. Do you think he dreamt of having everyone hate him and his family or not belonging anywhere or belonging anywhere of value? I doubt it. 
In fact, as I was thinking about Levi this week, I wondered, was this the only job he could get? Because once you took this job, you couldn't go back to any other job. Did he have bills to pay? Was he at the lowest time of his life? Was he just trying to make ends meet? Because when you uh, have a family that you need to put food on the table for, you're going to be willing to do just about anything. When Jesus invited Levi in, his response was the same as the four fishermen. He got up and went immediately. You want to know why? Because this was probably the first time in years and years and years that somebody treated Levi like a human being and not like a piece of dirt. See, Jesus wanted the man that nobody else wanted. And this was Jesus' next invite into his club. Come be my fifth amigo, he said. And it gets better or worse, depending on what side of the fence you are. We're going to keep going, starting at verse 14. As Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many other tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. And there's this parenthetical statement. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Verse 16. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? If you're following along in your translation, it probably says with tax collectors or sinners, but I like the liberty that the free living, the new living translation put there. Because that's how they would have been seen. Scum. Tax collectors and sinners is what the original Greek says. Why would Jesus eat with them? Did he know who they were, or was this a purposeful choice on his part? I may have told this story in the last 17 years once or so, so if you start hearing it and you remember that I told it, go ahead and check your Facebook or your fantasy football scores. But for those who are newer here, I used to live right down the hill, uh, West Central, with my wife and, and kids, and we, we loved our neighborhood. It was an eclectic neighborhood. A lot of people uh, don't want to live in the West Central neighborhood, but we had great neighbors. Okay? On the left side, we had a same-sex couple that had kids together that were very committed to each other. Next to them, there was a multi-generational, multi-racial family. Across the street from them was a little five-plex that would later get raided by the cops for drug use. Uh, next to that house was a big pink house that had at least one, maybe two people who had some, some mental challenges. Uh, one of the guys would walk around in overalls without a shirt underneath year-round. Next to that was a HUD house. And then on our immediate right, there was the uh, middle-aged to older couple that had a 40-foot yacht in Lake Coeur d'Alene. We had an eclectic neighborhood. Okay? There was one evening that I remember Abby and I heard laughing outside. So we kind of opened up our blinds and we saw that there was the beginnings of a gathering across the street. There was a fire pit. There was some, uh, some folding chairs. So we're like, hey, we didn't get invited, but let's go anyway. So we grabbed some folding chairs. <laughs> and we walked across the street. And as I'm walking, I noticed that there was a cooler next to one of the folding chairs. And I noticed the person sitting next to it just kind of reached over and pushed it behind them. Me being me said, what's in the cooler? There's this awkward silence. I'm like, no, serious, what's in the cooler? So they open it up, right? And it's full of adult beverages. 
So I grabbed an adult beverage, I sat down in my chair, I cracked it open, and I took a drink, and wouldn't you know it, there was just this sigh of like, (gasps) and people started laughing, and they started telling stories, and they started telling about what they were going through, and wouldn't you know it, a neighborhood happened. 30 minutes later, with the, uh, the husband two houses down, he hadn't been there yet. He just got home from work. And there's this nice healthy hum of laughter and stories being told. And, and over the hum, I hear the wife say, hey, hey, pastor had a beer. <laughs> that might have been the most Jesus-like I ever was in that neighborhood. Because that day, that evening, whether you agree with what I did or not, that evening opened up relationships that still last to this day. We have walked through with this couple on the left side when their son got incarcerated all the time he was in and all the way back out. We have walked some serious life with these people. I wonder if around the table that Jesus was sitting at with Levi, if there was an eclectic group of people. As we know, there was tax collectors. The text tells us that. But there's also this other phrase, disreputable Sinners, it says. Later, Jesus, uh, later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many of this kind among Jesus' followers. Now, the word sinner here is hamartolos, and it has a double meaning. Yes, it can mean the person who lives fast and loose in life. It can mean the thief, the murderer, the adulterer, the prostitute. You know, the ones we typically think of when we hear the term sinner. But it can also mean somebody who doesn't follow the scribal law in every little detail, meaning the murderer is put in the same category as the person who doesn't wash their hands correctly before dinner. The prostitute is put in the same category as the person who carries the stick ten steps on the Sabbath instead of the allowed seven steps, but that person has to warm their house because their kid's getting cold. The thief is put into the same category as the person who puts a little bit of bacon on their turkey sandwich. I'm so glad I didn't have to follow the scribal law because bacon makes everything better. Amen? That's the loudest amen I got all morning. Always has to do with bacon. Okay? They weren't following the scribal law to the letter of a T. In our day today, that could mean the person who doesn't show up for church every Sunday morning And we think, oh, they're backsliding and wandering away from the faith. When in reality, what's going on is they're working their third job at McDonald's because their first two jobs can't help them pay for the blanket that their kid needs because nights are getting colder now. What that could mean is that the cussing cabbie in Belfast, who uses words we don't normally use in our call to worship, I do wonder, were the religious people spying on Jesus? Were they just like walking by and they heard music coming from inside the house? I don't don't know, but the, the people that says here, the scribes of the Pharisees, these were a very specific group of people who prided themselves in following the letter of the law, both the moral law and the scribal law, like to a T. They were excellent at it. They had grown up following it. They had not broken too many, if any, rules. And by doing so, they believed they were being made right with God. And they believed that because that's what they had always been taught. My friend Russ, who's an atheist, would say that's how they were indoctrinated. 
That's a pretty strong word, but years and years, generations and generations of teaching that they had heard, that's what they knew. So again, we can't criticize them for that. And you notice in here that they don't go directly to Jesus and say, hey, how come you're eating with these guys? They actually ask people on the fringes, on the outside of the table, why is that? Maybe it's too crowded. Maybe there's so many people in there they couldn't get in. Or maybe it's because they didn't want to accidentally rub shoulders and touch somebody and make them ceremonially unclean. You know, by Jesus sitting at the table, reclining at the table with them, in that culture, that was him saying, you're in. I welcome you. I accept you. And this was a group of people, including Levi, that had been kicked out of everything, out of community, looked down upon, hated, and yet they had found community within and amongst themselves. They were loving each other well. This was a group of people doing all they could to survive, which meant they were living lives on the fringes. And you know what Jesus did? (laughs) He walked right into the fringes and said, what's in the cooler? And he sat down with them. We don't get to see this in our English text because the the Greek to Hebrew translation is is tough to do. But the phrase in Greek that it says reclining at the table, it actually paints the pictures that Jesus was hosting the dinner. Yes, it says it was at Levi's house and normally Levi would be the host. But this paints the picture of Jesus being the host. He was the one leading the jokes. He was the one telling the stories. He was the one making eye contact, eye contact, laughing. He was the one offering forgiveness and welcome to a group of people who the church folk didn't think deserved forgiveness and welcome. Can you imagine how many of them couldn't wait to get home and tell their families, oh, I had goulash giggles and a glass of wine with Jesus. It was awesome. But we see that the religious folk, the leadership, they weren't too terribly excited about this, right? Why does your teacher eat with Tax collectors and sinners. Why does he eat with such scum? And I absolutely love Jesus' response. Probably one of my top five, top five favorite verses in Scripture. Verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. A lot of you were here where for years out in the foyer we had a a pair of antique crutches in the shape of a cross and we had painted around those crutches this verse. It was a visible reminder every time we walked in the door that Jesus came for those who are sick and broken and who need to be healed. Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So is this the first time Jesus is keeping somebody out? One might think so, but I'm not that one. This was a common proverb back then. The Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, they would have known it. They would have agreed with it. So by using this proverb, I think Jesus is opening the invitation to them, saying, hey, you know what? If you know you're sick... If you know you need me, come on in. Join me at the table. But if you don't think anything's wrong, that's on you. That's on you. I think Jesus is offering an invitation into his kingdom now, into life with them by saying, I've come for the sick. 
I've come for those who need me. But I think he's leaving the ball in their court and he's allowing them to do what they want to do with that invitation. There's beauty in that. There's also just a whole lot of unsettled in that. But there's beauty in that. He's saying, if you need a doctor, come on. How many of you like going to the doctor? I don't. If you're a doctor, thank you for being gifted and skilled in medicine. Thank you for practicing medicine. But it took a 105-degree fever after my appendix had ruptured in Las Vegas, and I drove from Vegas to Fresno to actually go to the hospital. It would have been a lot cheaper and a lot less painful had I listened to my wife, who a week ago said, that sounds like your appendix. Uh, and my general practitioner who said, hey, it sounds like it might be your appendix. You should go to the doctor. And the ER doctor in, in Vegas who said, get in the cab now because we need to take care of you. I didn't listen to any of them because I don't like going to a doctor. I don't like admitting that I'm sick. Maybe the first time I found a lump in my arm, I should have gone to the doctor, but I didn't. I waited till I was swimming and it started swelling. And then I'm like, wait, nothing's wrong with me. I'm going to wait a couple days, go swimming again. Next thing you know, it's swollen and purple and I'm in the ICU. I don't like admitting that something's wrong with me. I'm as stubborn as the next guy. And I can't throw any stones at these people who have been taught for all of their life and their parents' life, their grandparents' life, and so on and so forth, that the way to be made right is by following the the rules. So therefore, they don't think they need a doctor. But Jesus says, look, I'm giving you a shot here. If you think you need a doctor, I'm here. What a risk it would have been for any one of them to say, huh, I'll at least come to the table. I'll see what you're talking about. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Does this mean Jesus doesn't like good people? No. Show of hands, how many of you have ever sinned? Okay. Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you just did sin, so... Because you're a liar in Revelation 21.8. We know where liars go. Jesus says, come on. Who will come to the doctor? Who will join me at the table is what he's saying. Jesus welcomed tax collectors and notorious sinners, and he welcomed the murderers and those who didn't wash their hands in the right way. And he's saying to those religious people who have followed all the rules, you know what? You may need me too, but I'm going to leave that up to you to make that choice. Sometimes Jesus has the hardest time getting through to church folk. You can say amen to that just like bacon, okay? Sometimes Jesus has the hardest time getting through to church folk. In the last book in the Christian Scriptures, Revelation, Jesus writes to seven different churches. He speaks to seven different churches. The church of Laodicea, he's writing to a church full of church people. Is that clear? Church folk, and he says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. To church folk, Jesus has to say, you still need to let me in. And when you do, I'm going to sit down and share a meal with you as a friend. Tell you what, the best meals I've ever had are meals that are shared with friends. It's probably been 30 years since I had a microwave dinner. Not the same as a dinner with friends. Would those scribes of the Pharisees hear the knock and open the door? Would they share a meal with Jesus? Maybe a more pertinent question is, will we? Will we hear a knock at the door? 
when we open it, when we invite Jesus to the table, I have to ask myself this question because this text this week, it shook me because I am a paid religious elite. I am the people that Jesus had so much problems with. And I had to think how many times I or we have we subconsciously put people in that other notorious sinners category, right? Not the blatant moral sinners, but the other notorious sinners category, like, you know, the people who don't pray before a meal, or the, the people who don't show up every Sunday, or, or the people who don't serve in the children's ministry, even though we've asked 17 times to serve because they know they're not gifted and they shouldn't be working with kids, but they're not going to tell us that. You know, or the people who don't volunteer at a soup kitchen or juggling three different jobs because they want to pay for their, for their kids' shoes, or the people who hang out with people we wouldn't hang out with. Maybe we should evaluate who we're hanging out with. This text shook me this week because I had to ask myself, which character am I? And when you actually put yourself in the story, it's not as easy an answer as you would think. We've been invited to Jesus' table, to the communion table. Okay? And we're going to take it today a slightly different way. Traditionally, when we serve communion, the text that we, that we share out of it is you know, the, on, the, on the night Jesus was betrayed. Right? So the night before he goes to the cross, and it was Jesus celebrating the Passover supper, and it made sense for Jesus to break bread and say, this is my body broken for you, and it made sense for him to pass a cup. This is my blood shed for you. Um, remember that as we take this together. But as I've reflected on this meal Jesus had around this table with Levi and maybe the same type of people that would be in lawn chairs around a fire pit across the street, I had to think that every time Jesus ate a meal with them, it was pointing towards this meal at the Passover. Every time Jesus sat down with someone who the religious elite didn't think he should have, it got him closer and closer to the cross. And you know what? I don't think Jesus minded in the least bit. I think he broke bread at that dinner with Levi, and I think he handed it to people, and I think he commented on how good it was. And I think he probably said, try it with some butter. Oh. And I think he shared a glass of wine. And he may have passed it around and said, where did you get this? What vintage was this? Is this like B.C. or A.D.? <laughs> he wouldn't have said that. I think we can gather around the table together recognizing that, yes, we are remembering what Jesus told us to remember at the Passover, but we can today celebrate it as if he's inviting us to Levi's house. You know, I was sitting here this morning thinking, as a, as a pastor, who do I invite to the table, right? You're all welcome, whether you're a member here or not. I want to welcome you to the table. But the reciprocal thought kept coming to me. Whose table do I accept an invitation to? And I would hope that I wouldn't ever say no to somebody just because they may be on the outside. So here's how this is going to go. Different than in times past, we saved a longer worship set for the end. This may, this may work out tremendous, or it may fail miserably. Okay, We're just going to give ourselves the grace for that. Um, the worship team is going to come on forward. You guys go ahead and come on forward. They're going to lead us in four songs of worship. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to get chunks of people, and we're going to gather around the table Okay? I'm not going to explain breaking bread and drinking juice every time because I want us to be able to worship in song and I don't want to be a distraction. So just when we get back there, just look. And when I hold up the bread and take a bite, you guys can follow. Okay? And it's big pieces of bread. Don't stuff it all in your mouth at once. But, 
This is a meal, so we are making sure we... It's not the pinch. I love it. Okay, and same with the juice. We're going to do this while we worship. While we worship, you are welcome to stand if you want. You're welcome to remain seated if you want. You're welcome to kneel if you want. You're welcome to pray with your neighbor if you want. This is a time of worship. So what I'll do is I'll come get chunks of people, and I'll take you back. We'll take communion. Then I'll go back and sit you back down. I'll take the next chunk, and so on and so forth. So don't come back until I invite you back, and we'll see if this works. Sound good? Let's pray.